I'm Pete Seligman. Welcome to Season 3 of my podcast, The Next Step. This year, the Australian ETA and Search Fund community is looking forward to its first big event for the region. The ETA Forum will be held at the Manly Pacific Hotel on Manly Beach in Sydney on Friday the 16th of September. In the lead up to the event, I'll be interviewing the speakers and moderators to give you some insight into the experience, capability and knowledge that will be on offer when we all come together for the first time. Please stay tuned as we count down the days and be sure to yell out if you have any questions or comments to offer so we can make the ETA Forum a great event for all involved. Now let's jump into this episode of The Next Step. Probably where we have a unique experience is we actually deal with both sides of the coin as well. I mean, a lot of our clients are actually selling a business. So we're kind of advising them on that lead up to that journey. And we often say, look, got to get your data right, got to get your ducks in a row. And it's a one to two year journey you should be going on before you're even taking it to market so that your data is right and your systems and processes are in there. And but yeah, I guess from our point of view, have that advantage of seeing people getting ready for sale and advising them through the sale process. And then there's all the sort of small business CGT and the tax planning that kind of goes along with that. So I guess as advisors, we get to sort of see both from a vendor point of view and then also from a bidder or investor point of view as well. In this episode of The Next Step, I speak to John Liston and William Bracewell from Liston Newton Advisors. Liston Newton have kindly offered to sponsor the ETA Forum coming up in September, which is great news because they're such a supporter of the search fund community generally in Australia, already working closely with a range of searches and also acquired businesses here. During the conversation, we learn a little bit about the background of Liston Newton, a little bit around the kind of work that they do in the small business and mid-market sector. And we also kind of hone in on what are those key things that searchers need to think about, not only when considering getting into search, but also after they've made that acquisition and what should that first three, six, 12 months really look like? How do they hone in on the fundamentals and how do they make sure they've set a good foundation for growth rather than rushing into some of those headline opportunities? I hope you enjoy the conversation. You'll be able to see John and Will and potentially some of the rest of their team in September at the ETA Forum. So if you haven't already got your tickets, please jump in and grab some and I'll look forward to seeing you there. Cheers. Morning, guys. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I'm really grateful to have you here and for you to give up your time to talk to me today. Maybe if we just kick things off and you guys could provide a quick introduction to Liston Newton and yourselves, and maybe just give us a bit of a background around where did your business come from and kind of how did it evolve over time? Yeah, sure. And uh, thanks for having us, Pete. So uh, John Liston's my name. The firm is Liston Newton Advisory. It's actually a, a family business. It started quite a while ago, 1976, we trace ourselves back to. And since then, we've sort of had a couple of, I guess, evolutions in terms of our kind of client base um, and also, you know, I guess our overall kind of growth path um, as well. Um, so started by my father back then. Um, he's still involved in the business as a, as a chairman um, and I'm currently the, um, the managing director of the firm. Um, next to me on the podcast today is also William Bracewell, um, and Will's joined us from uh, Ernst & Young um, and now heads up our advisory um, and I guess a sort of separate kind of M&A services um, division that we have as well. Um, in terms of the firm, yeah, I guess, um, you know, we essentially try and service um, a segment of the market that's probably that sort of lower mid-tier section. Um, and we're essentially building ourselves up and, and sort of moving more into that yeah, lower, lower mid-market, um, sort of lower mid-tier section. Uh, we have about 45 team members with us here, um, and we basically service uh, businesses sort of 
right through their kind of business journey and also business owners right through their wealth journey. So what I mean by that is um, we tend to help businesses um, both acquire a business um, and then we help them set up, you know, the, the finance function, we help them with the bookkeeping, we help them with the ongoing tax um, and we also kind of help them, you know, on the due diligence side of things as well when they're, when they're actually looking at, you know, what, what type of business actually might, might get into. Um, but we probably more consider ourselves a financial services business. So um, across both accounting and tax and also advisory, we also do um, financial advice which we consider very important. So, you know, we trace that back to why is a business owner get into business? Generally, it's because they want to build their own wealth. They want to build their family's wealth. So, we certainly have that service available there as well. We have our own credit license where we can help people with uh, home loans and investment property loans. We have a bookkeeping team as well. Um, and we also play quite a bit around self-managed super. So, generally, the, the sort of ethos of, of the firm is help ambitious business owners grow their business and help them grow their wealth at the, at the same time. That's fantastic. I mean, <clears throat> I've got to say, uh, I might be a little bit biased, but I'm already working with Will on on one of the investments that I'm involved with, and uh, and uh, it, it it is a great experience um, because I think that one of the things that I've noticed having owned businesses for a little while now is that there is a there is a gap there, right? There, there's some really good tax and bookkeeping services provided to the very small end of the market, and there's there's obviously the the big guys in the second tier that are offering services to the bigger end. But there is this gap in the middle where, um, you know, there are some growing small mid-tier businesses that really need good advice and good support. And it's kind of that juggle between whether or not they can afford to either get it in-house or pay for the big guys or whether or not they need to kind of manage it themselves through the process. So I can see that there's some real value in the gap that you're filling there. Um, and as I said, I'm experiencing it already um, sitting on the board of ACE and, and working with Will, which is great. Um one of the things that's really interesting for me, whether it be entrepreneurs, investors or advisors, is hearing how they first came across search and search funds um, as a model. Um, can you give us a couple of minutes on, like, obviously, if you hear about your business model, it does focus in exactly on the kind of targets that we're talking about here. But when was your first kind of touch point with search specifically and how did you get more involved? Yeah, I think probably the first time I heard the word term search fund, uh, I think is going to be one of your speakers, Johnson Wang, um, got introduced to him through kind of mutual friends and and um, as I think a lot of the search community um, had sort of brought that back from the USA and and uh, I guess had brought some of that some of that thinking back in terms of, you know, uh, buy and then build. Um, so I started to sort of read a, a few books around that, started to listen to uh, a couple of podcasts there as well that, that sort of... Now, we were initially involved a bit in the startup community um, going back to probably the early 20, 2010s. Um, we actually had, a, I guess, a, a mini startup ourselves, listed Newton in terms of we worked alongside Uber and actually created a an online tax service for our Uber drivers and, and that sort of share uh, economy um, business. And uh, we actually just recently sold that, sold that business. So, we're sort of in that startup world and then that kind of evolved into um, the more buy and build world and the sort of search fund world. Um, so, started to get involved in that along that journey as well. I mean, Liston Newton itself has acquired a number of accounting firms along the way. So, you know, we're very much attuned to the challenges of, I guess, M&A and, and, you know, getting the right advice and making sure the data is correct and, and sort of doing that, that, that proper work. Um, and then, yeah, from there, um, 
you know, started to understand a bit of the search community, started to get introduced to some of the people uh, that are involved in there, such as um, some of the private lending and, and business business lending arms. I think Fulcra Financial is another one that's that's involved there as well. And they introduced us to to uh, to Jake and, and Rob and the guys at, at, at Ace Training there as well. So that alongside, um, I'm also involved in a, in a separate sort of small PE fund called Venture Growth Partners. And we've been kind of investing in, in other businesses as well. So it's kind of been a perfect storm of one, Lister Newton ourselves doing M&A, two, sort of helping to service that kind of community, um, and then three, just sort of through, through, through the networking and events um, like what's coming up with, um, with yourself, um, you know, starting to, to, to sort of understand who's, who's who in the, um, in the community. Yeah, it's, it, it's really, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I know that it's interesting um, translating some of that experience that you guys would have had from a long time um, in dealing with. And it's interesting you talk about yourselves actually going through acquisitions of your own, because I know that one of the really, um, not only pre-completion, but also post-completion, dealing with um, existing business owners as vendors, um, dealing with, particularly in your case, um, the data and dealing with quite likely the, the lack of data or the lack of quality of data um, and then trying to work how to bridge that gap from kind of relatively low quality data typically through to making a good acquisition and then and then good growth decisions after that. Um, I think that that's one of the, the real skills that, that guys like you can bring to the table because I know that it's definitely one of the biggest challenges and and it, a common bugbear is also working capital, which also always comes up. And I know that you guys must cross that bridge lots, right? I can see Will smiling. Uh, so, um, you know, working capital is one of the least understood um, kind of um, mechanisms, whether it be during a deal or just during running a business um, in the small business community. And I think the more that there are people like you that actually get it out there speaking to buyers and sellers, um, that'll just improve the process, right? Because I think a lot of vendors, particularly with working capital, feel like they're they're being um, kind of taken advantage of in some way um, in that process. But actually, it's just a fairness mechanism. Um, and so, the better advisors in the mix, the the better for all of us, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, the old normalised levels of working capital seem to be the, the point of contention in a lot yeah. of those things. Yeah, I think as well, probably where we have a unique experience is we actually deal with both sides of the coin as well. I mean, a lot of our clients are actually selling a business. So we're kind of advising them on that lead up to that journey. And we often say, look, got to get your data right, got to get your ducks in a row. And it's a one to two year journey you should be going on before you're even taking it to market so that your data is right and your systems and processes are in there. And but yeah, I guess from our point of view, have that advantage of seeing people getting ready for sale and advising them through the sale process. And then there's all the sort of small business CGT and the tax planning that kind of goes along with that. So I guess as advisors, we get to sort of see both from a vendor point of view and then also from that bidder or investor point of view as well. I, I definitely think as a buyer of businesses, I much prefer to deal with a well-advised vendor than a poorly advised vendor. Like you kind of initially you might think, oh, it's good if they're poorly advised because there might be some gaps that I can take advantage of, but really it never works out that way. It's always harder. I mean, if it's they're well advised, it makes for a much better match, I think. Um, it's so. actually as well. I think you're, you're spot on there. And even if they have, I guess, if they're not well informed on the on, on the process and then they get overwhelmed, then they, they just say, well, just deal with my lawyer. And the lawyer might be the, you know, their, their, their mate who operates down the road and, and, you know, has one or two people working for him. And all of a sudden, 
the only advice they're taking is from their, you know, from their sort of backyard lawyer, so to speak. So, you know, the more well-advised they are, even though you think you might have an advantage, as you said, it, it tends to backfire along the way somewhere. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, that's a that's probably a good segue into the next part of the conversation I was keen to have with you guys. I mean, with the perspectives that you've got, both within the search community, but also just generally advising the businesses and owners that you do, like what do you see as being kind of the the main issues or priorities that um, from a searcher, let's do both actually. So we'll start with searches, right? So, so if you're speaking to searchers, either those that are considering the process or those that are already in it, what are the things that you'd say about um, buying, owning and operating a small business in Australia and what, what kind of what are the key issues that arise that they need to be aware of? Like that will. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's many things under the sun that you consider, but we sort of break it down into a, a few stages of the process. So, I mean, before you want to consider purchasing a business, you need to get yourself um, yourself all in line and make sure that you understand business ownership and running the business. I mean, and then going into further, actually doing some good work in understanding the business. So, due diligence is the first step of that. Um, and before, I mean, you even get into that, you want to really understand what sort of sale you want it to be. So is it an asset sale? Is it a share sale? Um, so, yeah, it really starts from just the first thinking of, I want to get into this, and then you sort of build from there, working like, through the process. I like the um, the idea that you start there with thinking about it from your own personal perspective because there's it's, yeah. it's a really is quite a personal decision, right, deciding that I want to become a business owner and it impacts everything about your life, right? It's not just like taking another job. It is a whole process. What have what have you seen when you're dealing with either existing owners or people that become owners? What are the kind of personal challenges that you see that they face that they need to make sure they've got their head around before they get into it? Uh, the, the main thing I find is just the workload. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of uh, CEOs and people that come on with, with the owners they really don't understand the level of workload that it does take to own a business and also the pressures so. Around actually eat what you kill for um, no better way to say it, but um, you're sort of you're paying you're paying the staff you're in you're in charge of however many employees you have you're paying their daily wages or weekly wages and that's a lot of pressure that's a big difference to actually just being on the salary and getting paid so I think cash flow is is a major thing that they need to consider and make sure that they're well aware of and then again the level of effort that is that goes into running a business is completely different to, let's say, if you're managing a team within a business, they're it's completely funny. different sides. A, a lot of people in big businesses have that label on their desk that says the buck stops here, but you don't realise what that really means until you then go and actually put that on the desk of a business you've just bought and then suddenly you realise, oh, my God, like the buck really does now stop with me. Like previously, like it felt nice to think that the buck stopped with me. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. That that real like ultimate accountability, you know, payroll's coming out, you know, cash is at a particular level. I've got these creditors to pay. That debt is paying late. Like how do I make sure I get this balance right um, it is a really tough, tough point to make. Um, one of the other things I noticed recently that you guys are doing is a bit around more the growth strategy and a bit around that kind of diagnostic of 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 um of businesses as they're looking to grow into the next phase can you tell me a bit about um kind of what your what are the kind of key things that you guys would focus on if you were sort of just say it was post-completion right and so someone's just bought their business and they're getting their feet under the desk in the first kind of six or 12 months 
Um, what are the kind of main things that you guys would want to look at to start to understand what the opportunities might be from a growth perspective? Yeah, it's a really that's really interesting question because I find a lot of businesses that we do assist and work alongside with they've gone in with this massive theory of I'm going to buy it today and it's going to be two three times the size within 12 months and I mean that sort of does lead to a lot of decisions that probably aren't for the best in the business world so I mean that six to 12 months we just try and advise it's sort of get your feet under the desk settle the business there's a lot of change going on there's a new ownership structure probably new management structure you put in place and it's just really making sure that you start to understand how the business is run I mean, if it's your first business, you've probably got your own learning curve that's basically going up vertically. Um, and so the first six months is, yeah, again, just trying to understand how it's how the business is run and making sure that you can get things in place. So finance functions, you want to have a pretty set, automated, efficient finance function set up. So pretty much your, your level of involvement in that is quite limited. Uh, you have a pretty tight payroll function set up. So, I mean, that's the number one killer of any businesses is if your employees get disgruntled and they're, and they're going to get disgruntled when they're not getting paid. So making sure all that's on time and they're all set up and, and well just yeah, and well done is pretty important. I mean, making sure, yeah, it's just the processes and procedures are all, all watertight. And then from then onwards, you can sort of look to grow it from the 12 months plus where you can start adding on new services, adding on new products. But yeah, that first 12 months is really just steadying the waters and making sure that you've got a business that has a, a good foundation to grow from. And just to add to that, what we often find with you know people doing M&A or, or, or buying businesses is often you're buying what has been a family business or it's been a single-owner business or they've had it for 10 or 15 years and maybe they're sort of you know 50 to 60 years old and they're finishing up. Often they've got, you know, the wife's been doing the bookkeeping and, you know, or, you know, someone's been in the business for 10 or 15 years. So the systems and processes they're using are not the most modern and the data that you're able to get out of the business is not what you need to make those, I guess, rapid, you know, real-time real data um, decisions there. So as Will said, it's really about rather than getting in there and saying let's grow this thing as, you know, as fast as we possibly can, it's, okay, what is the state of the finance function? What do we need to sort of get right? Are the people in the business involved in the finance function the right people to take this forward? Can I get the data I want, you know, as soon as I want it? Um, because, yeah, often you probably bought it at a decent multiple because a lot of that stuff is not quite as efficient and not quite as modern as it should. And that's where the opportunity is, which is great. But you've got to spend some time fixing that. Yeah, it's definitely like operational leverage is is a huge factor in most of these deals. The ability to just get in there and fix the machine itself, like the internal part of the machine, rather than even before you even think about the external factors, um, there's a lot of opportunity. I imagine that's quite similar, whether it's a search deal or whether it's just one of your new onboarded clients, you'd find that quite a lot. Like I imagine your experience in being introduced to a new business, putting your head under the bonnet, seeing there's a few kind of, uh, you know, nuts and bolts to tighten in there is probably a pretty consistent message. Do you find that, that that's quite a common factor of businesses of this size and type, that, that they, they have that opportunity to just fix some of those fundamentals? Yeah, I mean, the way that technology is moving, if we went back even four or five years, zero wasn't even really existing and wasn't even a thing. And these days, zero is probably one of the most used accounting softwares in, in Australia. So, it is moving very quickly and I know businesses, they do invest quite a lot into technology, so they are sometimes reluctant to change. So a few companies we've worked on have invested upwards of a couple hundred thousand in 
making a, a purpose-built accounting software, which is pretty much redundant in a year or two. So there's always things to change. And that's why whenever we bring on clients, we have, we sort of put in a place a 100-day plan, mm-hmm. which sort of lays out what's going to happen in the first 100 days. I think that's the, first, the best time to sort of really hit the ground running. The company's already ready to change and they're receptive to change. And so adding on these things, which they can see some, some really good quick wins, um, and there's usually plenty of them, whether that's an invoice readings or using OCR systems or changing the accounting software or even just putting in some sort of processes such as month-end timetables. Um, really easy wins, but can see some some good some good outcomes pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm always surprised at how much paper still exists in some of these businesses. And I remember with the, the first business that I bought, um, there was one piece of paper or one booklet of paper that was like critical to the business. It was where they wrote down every order they received and all the details. So the date, the purchase order number, the client, the details, all that sort of stuff. And within the first month or two, I replicated it online. So then it was like an online system. But I left a piece of paper there because the vendor was still there for about six months. And I remember one day after it had been redundant for months, I said to the, the team in the office, I think we can get rid of the paper booklet now because, like, no one's really using it except for Steve. Um, and they said, okay, okay, well, I reckon we can get rid of it. The next day he came in and said, where's the booklet? I can't believe, like, the business, What? how are we possibly going to know? <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I think to your point, John, about, um, you know, the, these families having running run these businesses for such a long time, that those are fundamental to the way in which they understand the ebb and flow and the heartbeat of the business is some of these processes. So, so to break them, effectively break them to introduce new ones is is um, is a big change, which is the opportunity of new ownership, but also part of that challenge, I imagine. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, and first of all, we've seen businesses turning over 20 mil that still have the in-tray of bills to pay yeah. and the out-tray and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So you, you still see it. But I think it's a really valid point around the other, I guess, problem and also opportunity is that the outgoing vendor, he tends to do everything in the business, right? So he's the guy that probably pays the bills because he doesn't want anyone to look at the bank account and he does the payroll mm. and he's out there doing the marketing. He's out there doing a bit of everything and he's doing them all to probably, you know, 60% of what they could be done. So, yes, you've got to update the systems and the software and the processes, but you've also got to kind of find out, okay, who's going to step up now within the business and actually kind of take control of this entire function because often they've sort of been able to fall back on the outgoing vendor who's done a bit of everything and that's how he's kind of kept his eye on the the overall business because he's sort of he's kind of done it all. Um, so, a little bit of that and hopefully you've got, you know, a three- to six-month um, transition period with that vendor, but you've often got to kind of get it off him or her mm. and then get it into the right the right areas of the business. Yeah, yeah, and that delegation point's a really interesting one too because often that's that's part of the limiting factor. Like a lot of these businesses that hit, I don't know what it is, a million of earnings sale, two million of earnings, it's not um, a capacity constraint in the market. It's not ever capacity constraint of the business model. It's actually the org structure I find quite often. So like the leader is not willing to delegate. And so you end up with this big flat layer below that individual. And they're definitely not willing to let their people delegate. So you can't end up with more more kind of span of control down. And so that often is part of the part of the issue that causes that constraint. Um, and so part of what you can then do is start to get that delegation out, which means some of those people in the team are almost unleashed. It's like 
Now you yeah. can have this responsibility and, and almost they get this new lease of life, which is great for that management team that sits just below the previous owner. Um, it's interesting though, like I always find, particularly with businesses like yours, um, a lot of people misconstrue it as being, oh, these guys can help us get the numbers right. But a lot of getting that right is actually getting the people side of the equation right and getting that cultural side and all that sort of thing. So I imagine that you guys must get involved in quite a few of those conversations at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and often the first thing is to get that org structure out and just go, and when Will mentions the word finance function, that's exactly right. So, okay, who's doing what? And it, it can get back to the basics of who's paying the bills, who's actually chasing the debtors, who's reconciling the, the zero, who's doing the payroll, and essentially just sort of sitting down with the new owner and going, okay, who's doing what? Because the last thing, as Will said earlier, is you, you're getting there and only one person's got the bank account access, so you've got... You know, the incoming CEO has kind of bought this business and now they've, they've just bought themselves a job, essentially. Yeah. They haven't bought a business. They've, they've bought themselves a job where they're now doing everything. So, yeah, taking a step back and, again, saying what, what Will said, don't worry about necessarily that pushing that growth as hard as you can in that in that first 100 days. Just take that step back and hopefully beforehand in, in the lead up, you know, once you know that the deal is going to get done, uh, maybe settlement's going to be sort of 30 or 60 days away, uh, use that time to essentially kind of work out what that finance function looks like. How can we get that operating as, as uh, efficiently as possible? And, you know, that's where we tend to sort of step in a bit more hands-on in that sort of first one to two months. But we kind of want to set it up and then step away ourselves as well. We don't want us involved. We don't want the owner involved. We want to work out who in the business can fill these roles, set it up so it's a system and a process, and then everyone sort of steps back. And then what you end up there with is, you know, sort of daily numbers, weekly numbers, monthly numbers, and that can kind of feed into financial models. It can feed into the, the monthly board meetings, and, and then you can start to get some proper, um, I guess, uh, decision-making processes out of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm obviously pretty excited about this year is the ETA forum that we've got coming up in September, and you guys have kindly offered to um, be one of the major sponsors. So thank you very much, first of all, <laughs> for your support for that event. Um, and it'll be great to have you guys there as well um, because, you know, we'll have a whole bunch of, of um, entrepreneurs there, either existing operators or people that are keen on search um, and a bunch of the investor community as well. Um, you know, from your perspective, um, what is it that you'd hope to get out of the forum on the day? Um, you know, what are the kinds of things that you want to be able to take away or, or what kind of experience are you hoping to be able to gain um, when you come to the forum in September? Uh, Will and I are just looking forward to a beer and some some, some warm weather. Pete. That's all. That's right. all we have. <laughs> warm weather. That's why you're coming north. <laughs> no, nah, look. I, I think it's just sort of continuing our journey with the with the community. I mean, we're obviously we you know we know yourself. We know a few of the guys that that we're working with. Um, yeah, and I think it'd just be great to sort of. It seems like this community's really got a lot of legs behind it um, and it'd just be great to sort of, I guess, get out there and meet a lot of the other operators in there. And often some of the, I guess, benefits is working out, you know, who are the other sort of service providers within the sector as well. So the people, as I mentioned before, that are that are doing the finance or the people that are doing other kind of advice roles there as well, uh, you get those types of networks and then, you know, you can start to work with them That because you don't want to be all things to all to all people. So for us, it's sort of, understanding, all right, well, if there's a particular problem or, or there's a particular service that one of our clients needs, who can we trust and who else is in that in that community? But, yeah, I often find, find with these things, Pete, it's really just about, um, you know, sort of meeting and, 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 you know, having a drink with people and sort of feeling that, feeling that community. 
No, it's great because, I mean, part of the way that, I mean, as I was saying before we press record, um, the way I've been approaching it to, at, at the foundational level is how do we get a bunch of people together and, and you know, have a bit of a party, right? Because we none of these people have met face to face just because of the, the age of the community in Australia, but also just because of COVID and all those other things, right? So really getting those face-to-face connections happening is going to be really useful. And what we've tried to do with the day is structure it so there's plenty of networking time. Like we've kind of maximised the fact that there's that time for people to mill around and be introduced and have conversations. So, um, no, it's great to hear you say that because that's, um, that's part of, you know, one of the fundamentals of the way we've tried to design it. So... Thank you very much for your time this morning. Really appreciate the time to have this chat with you and explore some of those issues. And again, thank you very much for your support for the event coming up in September and look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having us on. And well done on, uh, as we mentioned before, the press recordings. I get stressed enough when I'm trying to have 10 people for a drink and thinking no one will turn up. So the fact that you're uh, putting a party on and taking that responsibility is great. So yeah, it sounds like it'll be a great event. No, I appreciate it. It should be. Thanks, guys. Thanks, mate. You have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Next Step. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're joining us at the 2022 ETA Forum in Manly, I look forward to seeing you there. If you haven't already bought a ticket and this episode lit the spark, please head to etaforum.com.au to book your place and we'll see you in September.